um, as you're looking for it or turning there, um, we we preach, um, as most of you know, through Scripture, right? We, we start in a book and we just work our way week by week, um, month by month, through books. We try to alternate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We try to alternate between different genres. I'm looking... Um, and here's why. Listen, there, there are parts of Scripture that are much clearer how it is relevant, how it's impactful to us. And there are parts of Scripture because they're further removed culturally um, or in different, and even in genres that feel a little funny for us, um, that it's harder to find what it is that the Lord is saying or speaking to us. And Samuel is, is basically a history book for Israel, um, of the year roughly 1,000 B.C., so we're some 3,000 years removed. It's, it's specific in that it's watching the nation of Israel move from judges to a king, moving into a, being a monarchy. And so it is looking to tell the theology of what's going on, the implications and the characteristics of God in that, but also just the historical facts that are driving this um, through a few primary characters like Samuel, Saul, David. Um, and, and so when we look at it, listen, we're 3,000 years removed. It, it's, it's a different time. It's a different um, area of the world. Um, it's a different culture. And it, if, it, if we're not careful, we just kind of read through this section of Scripture, and it's just a story, right? And we're like, okay, that's interesting. Oh, that's unique. Oh, that's a little off-putting, right? And, and we have to dig and work a little harder to find what is it that the Lord is, is teaching? Why is this here? And yet, church, we, we believe that all of Scripture is, is God-breathed. That all of it speaks and it points us to Jesus. And that it's beneficial that, that in it, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so we want to do the hard work of, of digging through some of these books that may feel more like stories you heard in Sunday school. Um, and, and looking for and mining the riches of them. Where we left off last week in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel was the, the people of God are demanding a king, right? They're saying, Samuel, give us a king. We want to be like the other nations. And Samuel is angry at this. He feels rejected and he's, he's offended on God's behalf. And God says, listen, I want you to give them what they're asking for. I want you to give them a king. It's not you they've rejected. It's me. Because God has led them. He has protected them. He has fought their battles. He has provided for them. He has given them leaders. He has been their king. And yet what they continued to cry out and continue to say is we want a king like the other nations. We, we want to, we have someone who to go out and fight and to judge and to, to rule us and to lead us. And so what we're going to see now is, is the birth of, of a monarchy, of the kingdom coming. And so First Samuel ends with him saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to cry out someday because he's going to take your kids they're going to build an army. They're going to build an infrastructure. They're going to take your money. They're going to take your crops. And someday you're going to cry out like you did in Egypt saying, God, we're being oppressed. And he's like, I'm not going to hear you because you've brought this upon yourself and I've warned you. And then he tells everyone to return to their cities because it's now time to select a king. And they're waiting on God to reveal that. And so as we turn to verse 1 of chapter 9, we're going to begin to see this emerge. Pick up with me at verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. Benjamin is one of the twelve tribes of Israel, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. 
And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his soldiers upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you. Arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of, um, of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalish, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But the servant said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. And all that he says comes true. So let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to a man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to a choir of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And they went to the city where the man of God was. All right, so we're, we're 10 verses in, and you're thinking, okay, this isn't so bad, right? Like there's not, like God is not smiting the people. Um, this guy seems okay. Doesn't seem super dangerous or, or, or brazen even. Um, we, we've learned a little bit about his genealogy. He's an Israelite. They're looking for his dad's donkeys. And now they've heard of Samuel. And we're going to pick up in verse 11. And so they went up the hill to the city. And they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. <coughs> and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? So Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them to the hall, gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 people. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. 
So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guest. And so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place back into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. At the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down into the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. All right, now, now there's almost, you can imagine, they're breathing easier, right? Okay, this guy seems hesitant, humble even, right? He doesn't want it. He's not going, yeah, it's me. Put, put the mantle on me. He's going, are you sure you're talking to the right guy? I'm not sure what's happening here. Um, the, he, he seems like, is, is this, is this going to be okay? We're going to read just a few more verses, then we'll, we'll, we'll stop for the morning. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to, went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men are going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three young goats and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gebeth Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you, to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gabi, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said to him and, and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when he saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. All right, listen, I know we covered a lot there, right? A chapter and a half. I'm trying to kind of get a sense of where this is going. 
And, and what we're going to see here in chapter 10, right, is that, that Samuel gives Saul three levels of confirmation, three things on his way home that are going to happen. And the first, right, was that he was going to see some folks and these two people were going to tell him, hey, your donkeys have been found, right? It's confirming that Samuel's word is right and true, right? That what he had told him had come true. The second is that he's going to meet some folks going um, on their way to worship, right? And they're going to give him some of the priestly bread that was meant for um, the, the priest at Bethel. And, and he says, but I want you to take it and eat it, right? What he's saying is, hey, you're anointing. It's, it's from God, right? You need to take this, which you would not have been allowed to take now because God has anointed you. And the third sign was going to be the group that are prophesying. He's like, and the spirit of God is going to meet you and you're going to prophesy. And this is the confirmation that God is behind this, right? So he's going to see that Samuel's word is true. He's going to see that the anointing um, has taken, and he's going to see that God is affirming all that's taken place. Right? And so you can imagine that Saul's mind is absolutely racing, that he's probably staggered a little bit, going, man, I was just looking for donkeys, and now I'm going home king, and all these crazy experiences are going to happen on the way, and then they, they do. But it's important for us to note, because I think easily we can read chapter 9 and 10 and begin to go, okay, so chapter 8 was wrong, right? This guy is, he's going to be a good king, like God's affirming him, this is what God wants, but remember, in 1 Samuel 8, in verses 5 and 20 both, we see the people of God cry out and they say, we want a king like the nations. They're not saying like you, God, with your character, with your, we, we want one like the nations. And in chapter 9, as, Samuel is inter, or sorry, as Saul is introduced to us, think about the words that are used. That he was handsome, right? That there was no one more handsome. That he was tall. No one was taller. And that he was wealthy, we, we find in the Old Testament the only time height is talked about. None of the other kings right, of, of Israel are talked about as being these, these tall men. Height was talked about about the enemies of God. Right? As you think about when they would not go into the promised land, why? Because they were scared of the stature of the people. You see it in Numbers 13. Listen to Deuteronomy 1, verse 28. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Right? And, he, and they're saying, like, we're afraid. And so anytime we see height being mentioned in the Old Testament, it's, it's about the enemies of God. Right? Remember, the author of, of, of Samuel here is, is li- working a literary work as well. And they're just beginning to give some foreshadowing that, listen... Saul is not all that he's cracked up to be. Because here's what we have to offer you. He's tall. It's not necessarily a good thing, right, in in how Scripture has presented things. He's handsome. He's wealthy. He's powerful. What's it not saying? Nothing about his character. Nothing about his heart. Nothing about his wisdom. Nothing about his devotion. Nothing about serving or fearing the Lord. In fact, what do we see? That, Sam, that Saul is actually completely unaware of Samuel. And yet if you look back at 1 Samuel, the last verse of chapter 3, um, and the first verse of chapter 4, listen to what he says. Um, and all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, right from the north to the south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. 
And then we go into chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Right? He's the first national kind of voice in a long time. The first real judge of the people. And Saul lives five miles away. Five. Their cities are five miles apart. His servant knew who Samuel was. Right? Knew that, hey, this is his hometown. We should go see if he's there. Right? That what, what, is, what is chapter 9 actually presenting Saul as? It's spiritually dense. Right, that he is like the nations. He's tall, he's powerful, he's handsome, right? Nothing about his spirituality, nothing about his character, his heart, his devotion. And then a second kind of literary element that's going on here that would be culturally, right, we might not pick up on this, is that he's a bad shepherd. He's lost some donkeys that are big animals, that are not necessarily fast animals, and he's now spent three days like going in this big circle looking for his dad's donkeys. When, when, think about all the Old Testament characters you know. When we hear, think about Moses, he was a skilled shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. Right? And they're, they're presented as being skilled at their job. David, we will subsequently see, will be a skilled shepherd. Listen, the, the role of, of pastor, the role of king, is to be the under-shepherd. Because we have a shepherd. It's, it's Jesus, right? God is our shepherd. And so a pastor's job is to be the under-shepherd, shepherding a specific group of people. Right? The king, right, is, 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 got, is like the under-king, because we have a king who is shepherding the flock, the nation of Israel, towards what God wants. my battery All right, so we see that that Saul is not a good shepherd, and, and so what the author of Samuel is doing here is he's presenting Samuel one as like the he's presenting Saul as like the nations. He's not showing a spiritual um, proclivity. He's not showing one who feared and served the Lord. He's showing him as a bad shepherd. And so those who were, were culturally closer to this would have seen this and gone, "Whoa, wait a second. This isn't how we want our leaders to be presented. This isn't how we we want to think of them or see them. And in verse 20 of chapter 9, look at what Samuel says to Saul. He says, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? What, What that verse is saying, he's like, you are whom Israel is coveting. Right? He's saying, like, the, the, the nation has been longing, has been coveting, has been desiring a king, and you're it. And guess what? It ain't pretty. Right? Like, Saul is, is hearing it going, man, they, they, everybody wants me. And Samuel's saying, but it, it's not what we need. He is different from God. Look at verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man whom I spoke to you about. It is he who shall restrain my people. 
for churches. <laughs> Changing a flat. I say that like I know anything about NASCAR. All right. So look at verse 17 again. Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. It is he who shall restrain my people. Now listen, this word here, and some of yours may say lead or rule, right? But this Hebrew word everywhere else in the Old Testament is a negative word, right? They're making it as absolutely positive as they can here. Listen to 2 Kings 4, 17. I'm sorry, 17, 4. 2 Kings 17, 4. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to, so king of, to the king of Egypt, and he offered no tribute to the king of Israel as Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. That word bound there is the same Hebrew word here. Right? So he, what, what is Samuel saying about Saul? He's saying, you're going to restrain my people. He's saying, you're going to judge my people. You're not going to serve them well. Actually, what we're hearing from God here is he's saying, Saul, you're going to be a judgment upon my people. I'm going to punish my people through you. You're going to judge them, restrain them, and they will be punished for desiring a king because of the type of king that you're going to be. Right? This is, right, if we're not careful, we run through chapter 9 and we're like, Saul seems okay. Yet we need to see, he's not a good shepherd. He's like the nations. He is spiritually blind and dense. God is actually saying, you're going to be a judgment upon my people. And and just an interesting side note, as we see that the king is actually supposed to not just be under God, but he is supposed to be secondary to the prophet. Look at chapter 10, verse 8. The prophet um, Samuel says, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. The prophet had a direct line with God. He was hearing from the Lord. The king, while it was meant to be one who was leading, he needed the prophet who was hearing from God to speak, to, to know that they were headed in the right path. And that's what we're going to see. Is Saul going to be one who follows the word of the Lord or not? Is he going to do it some? Is he going to do it none? Is he going to do it all the time? But that the prophet was the one who needed to, to help guide and lead what was taking place. And so church, here's, here's where I want us to spend a few moments kind of thinking about, okay, what do we do with this story? What do we do with this section of scripture? Of scripture? And the first is this, is would we recognize the king? Right? Like, do we recognize God? Or do we celebrate leaders in the church or in the world who look more like the, like the nations, like pagans? Do we recognize a, a spiritual voice and a spiritual character that looks like Jesus? Or do we recognize those who are simply gifted and handsome and tall and powerful and look like what we think the world should look like? Listen to what Jesus says about this in John 5, verse 39. Talking to some of the spiritual leaders, right? So as those who would say that we are following Jesus, that we are spiritual people, listen to the warning that he gives to them in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it, is they, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Basically what he's saying is this, is you search to know God, and you have missed Him. You have searched the Scriptures that reveal who I am, and told you that I was coming, and what to look for, and what I would be like, and you don't recognize me. Right? John will say in in chapter 1, he came to his own and his own did not recognize him. Right? That that, that is the story of Scripture, is that we cannot be so arrogant and presumptuous to think that we always recognize who God is and what he is doing. That we are prone to look at those who are more like us than those who have the character of God. Right? That we can tend to look for talent who can get the job done, who is impressive versus those who have Christ-like character. And listen, that doesn't mean that those with Christ-like character get a pass and they don't actually have to get anything done, right? But when we look at Jesus, what do we think of? We think of humility. And so those who are following in the footsteps of Jesus are not going to beat their chest and tell you how awesome they are. They're not going to draw your attention to themselves Right, they are going to be humble servants because our king came not to be served, but to serve. And so when you see people who are impressive, look closer. Who are they calling you to? Is it to them? Is it to another man? Or is it to Jesus? Would we not be a people who are blinded by things that are impressive, loud, boisterous, like the world, but instead that we would see the, the beauty, the character, and the humility of God and in His people that He is transforming into Christ-likeness. That we would not be fooled by tricks and gimmicks and even signs and wonders that might distract and lead to man, to woman, and not to God. We don't want to miss Him. In John 10, he says that my sheep hear my voice. They hear it and they recognize it and they follow. Do we see him? Would we recognize him? Are we in scripture enough that we know what his character is like so that we see when it's not there? Are we asking him for wisdom? Listen, the people of God here in Israel are missing it. They're asking for a king and they're going to get a king that they deserve, not, right, not, not the king that they need. Do we know what we need to ask for in our leaders, in churches, in families, in government? Do we see the the, the transformative humility and character of God? The second thing is just a, a short thing. God is at work, right? Like that he is behind the scenes in this working out all the circumstances, right? That, that Saul and Samuel arrive at the same city within moments of one another so that they can meet. Like that God is at work. But it's also important for us to know, remember what did we learn about Samuel last week? That his sons are, are fools, right? They're not serving the Lord at all. They've, they're taking bribes and are perverting justice. And I think often now we think, man, if someone's kids are, are, are off, if someone has had a lot of issue in their life, God, he, he can't use them. He only uses those who are like pure or perfect or something. And yet we know that no one is. And I think it's encouraging for us to see that God is still using Samuel despite what we know about his personal life. And that we're going to see him use Saul both in good and in difficult ways. That Saul is complex. I think we have to remember that these are historical characters. These aren't just stories crafted to teach a lesson. 
These are real people in real situations who are complex and that God is going to use them. That he uses broken people for his glory and for his good to move his story along. The third thing is this. The question is, what was Israel putting their hope in? They were putting their hope in that they would get a king, they would look like everyone else, and that their king would be better than the other kings. What are we putting our hope in this morning, church? Right? Like they they had the God of the universe, and yet they wanted an earthly king. They were putting their hope in what could be seen, and what could be touched, and what could be felt, and what could be known. And we could say, look, there he is. That's him. That's our king. Aren't you impressed? He's ours. Church, if we're not careful, we can do the same thing in our lifetime. Right? That we can do that with, with politicians. We can do that with our nation. Right? We can do that with, with our church. We can do that with all sorts of things. That we put our faith and our hope in money, in power, in politicians, in nations, in military might. And we go, look at it. Isn't it impressive? I can touch it. I can see it. I can call it by name. And it's, but, it's, but here's the thing. It, it's temporary. It's not eternal. So are we putting our hope in things that we can see and touch? Are we putting our things, our hope in the eternal God of the universe? Whose story is moving forward. Who is bringing glory to his name. Who takes defeats and turns them into victories. Listen, there's, there's an idea out there right now that, like, that America is, is unraveling as a nation. And we're not going to get too far into this. But, and, and so you'll hear people say, well, man, if America is going to fall then the end is near. And yet what we see is that Israel fell all the time. And the end wasn't necessarily near. We are not the new Israel, right? And, and so what, our coming and going does not dictate what happens right in all of eternity. God is faithful to His people. He is faithful to His bride in the difficult times where we have put our hope in something other than Him. And He is faithful to His people in times of prosperity. Right, That we want to trust and follow and depend upon Him in all seasons of our life. He is going, he's using ups and downs to reveal His self, to draw us to Himself, to trust Him, to depend upon Him, and even to discipline us. We see Him do that to Israel. Right, He tells us in Hebrews as He's talking to the church and to believers that He brings discipline. Right, Would we not put our hope in things that are built on this earth? Would our hope be in the king of the universe who sits on his throne and laughs in derision at the nations of the earth who rage and, ta- and, and, and spit and raise angry fists at him? They are no threat to him. He is victorious. And he is working for your good in every situation, whether it seems good or it seems broken. Nothing will be wasted. Here's the last thing. And we'll be done this morning. Do we recognize the king? Do we trust that God is at work in broken people? What are we putting our hope in? And lastly, is this, is Saul was anointed. Right? He will later be publicly kind of put forth as king. Right? There'll be a a public ceremony where he will be proclaimed king. Right now he's been anointed king. David too will have a kind of a private anointing and then a public um, revealing as king. The anointing is, is kind of symbolic of, of a claim being um, like that God is staking his claim on them as it's being poured out. In Egypt, 
where they have recently come from, right? The greater king would anoint lesser kings as like servants, right? Even though you're a powerful person and a king, you're servant of the greater king, right? And so what's happening here is, is, is Saul is being told, listen, you're, you're going to be king, but you're not the king. We have the king. You're a lesser one. And I'm staking my claim to you. Private anointing, public affirmation. In Luke 3, when Jesus is baptized, he is anointed, right? He is given, right, the, the approval of God the Father where he is, the Spirit falls on him and where the Father says, this is my, my son, right? He is anointed, but he is not called king yet. He is king, but he's not seen king He lives a a humble life and goes to the cross and is seemingly defeated and destroyed. And it looks like victory has come for the world against God. And yet we know that Jesus is king, that he has conquered the grave. He has conquered the devil. He has conquered sin. He has walked out of an empty tomb, right? And is alive today to hear your cries and your prayers and your praise. That we have a king and one day every knee will bow. Right? Because he will publicly be proclaimed as king of all creation for all time. Right? That we're seeing this foreshadowing of this private anointing with a later public affirmation. Remember that Saul says that I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm like the lowest tribe. In Genesis 35, we see that, that they're told that nations will come from, from Benjamin. But then in Genesis 49.10, Saul, so no, no, no. It's going to be taken from the tribe of Benjamin eventually by who? The tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And why was it taken? Because Judah offered himself as a sacrifice, as a substitute on behalf of Benjamin when he was being held by Egypt. That Judah steps in and says, no, 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 don't keep Benjamin, take me. Church, we have a king who has stepped in as our place. Just as Judah did on behalf of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah will step in as a substitute for the tribe of Benjamin and send us the rightful king that we needed all along in Jesus. Who will then step in not just as a substitute as king, but as a substitute for the wrath of God. That you don't have to fear God any longer. You don't have to stand holding your sin before him anymore. That he has made you righteous and holy and perfect and covered by the blood of Jesus. If you trust that his life was the life you were supposed to live. His death was the death that you deserved. And his resurrection is for you. Right? That when we leave this life that we are in with the Father. Because Jesus has secured it on our behalf. That he was a substitute that we could not be for our good and for his glory. So the question as we begin to look at Saul's reign. And we're going to see ups and downs. Is whose knee, right? To whom are you bowing your knee? To whom are you putting the hope in this world and in this life to? Is it to the invisible king that will one day split the sky and will be very visible? Or is it to the things of this world? Right? Would we ask the Spirit for wisdom in that to reveal those things to us that we would trust and give glory to the rightful king? Let's pray. Father, we, we, we thank you for your word, the gift that it is to us. Lord, we confess that we often take it for granted. 
God, would we would you bless our efforts to to dig into passages that that may not make a, a ton of sense on the surface, that may need some some rooting and some digging? Father, would this morning would we simply have our chins lifted to see you as king? That we don't have to trust in the leaders of this world to be our savior. We have a savior. You are our Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are our rescuer. And Father, we're grateful that you continue to raise up good leaders in homes and in cities and in churches and in nations that would reflect you and the best parts of you. And we're grateful and we want to give honor to them. God, but would our ultimate hope and trust and reliance and dependence be in you? Whether we have a godly leader or not. God, give us eyes to to discern truth and character. Would we not be spiritually dense and blind as Saul? God, but would we have eyes to see what you were doing in the world? God, would we find our, our, our knees and our hearts bowed before you? Because you're king that we would follow, we would hear your voice and we would obey you. God, would we find a love for your word? Because in it we find you. We see your character. We see your calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.